You're listening to the Teaching and Learning Podcast, the podcast where teachers are the learners and come together to talk about how to make the most of their students' learning experiences. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode of the Teaching and Learning Podcast. The title of today's show is Your Introduction to Culturally Responsive Teaching. I'm Jordan Catapano with you once again, and today I had the chance to sit down and talk with Alina Morelli-Baima about this term and about what we can expect to find in Zaretta Hammond's book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. A little about Alina, she is currently the instructional coach and a special education teacher at Schaumburg High School. She's well-known across District 211 for leading engaging professional development sessions and in-district book studies, most recently on Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain by Zaretta Hammond. She is a food and beverage aficionado. She's a reader, a beater, a traveler. She's a tech enthusiast. She's worked as an educator in the Cook County Jail before moving into teaching special education in public high schools. In our conversation today, you'll hear a definition of culturally responsive teaching, an overview of what we can expect to find inside of culturally responsive teaching and the brain, a discussion about individualistic and collectivist mindsets, deficits versus assets, and how effective strategies must stem from effective understandings of what we're truly pursuing, and a way of understanding culture, our classrooms, and how we can make better instructional decisions as educators. I really found our conversation to be thought-provoking, and she helped me understand a broader and more productive way of understanding our work with equity. I hope you have the same experience. And as always, stick around after the interview for a few thoughts and takeaways. Don't ask me, I'll never tell. I look to you as it fell, and now you're in my way. I trade my soul for a wish, pennies and dimes for a kiss. I wasn't looking Hello, everyone. I'm here with Alina Morelli-Baima. Welcome to the show, Alina. Glad to have you. Thanks for having me, Jordan. Hi, Cougars. We're very excited to talk to you today because, as you know, uh, we are beginning our exploration of Zaretta Hammond's Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain. And we understand that you have worked with this text and even taught a course associated with it and done some other great things um, that we can learn from as we're getting started on our journey with this book. So um, we're gonna start off right away. And I just wanna ask you, in terms of terminology, what is culturally responsive teaching? Well, certainly starting with a loaded question there. <laughs> uh, culturally responsive teaching or CRT is, I'll probably shorten it. Um, really looks at improving the learning capacity of diverse students and um, diverse students linguistically, racially that have historically and currently been marginalized educationally. Um, And it really looks at the affective and cognitive aspects of teaching and learning. Um, So any efforts that we have to accelerate learning um, and and looking at those um, groups and making sure that they are keeping up with their peers and thriving, that is uh, where CRT lives. All right, so I have uh, uh, maybe a, like a challenging follow-up question because you know, of what you're describing about like, you know, closing gaps and helping students uh, you kind of um, get caught up to where uh, peers, uh, other peers may already be and really helping everyone excel. Isn't that what we're doing already as educators? Sure. Well, in theory, (laughs) but sadly in practice, when we look at our numbers, we can see that our um, racially, ethnically, linguistically diverse students are overrepresented in underperforming groups. Um, And there is a predictability to that. It's 
been happening, it's still happening. Um, so culturally responsive teaching helps us kind of get that spark so that we're, we can make sure that as we're moving forward, we're bringing everybody along with us. Okay, so, so instead of like accepting this as a norm, we're gonna say, look, like we can we can identify the, the problem and where the disparities are. So here's cultural responsive teaching as an answer to that in a sense. It's a way to help bridge those disparities. Yes, a way to amplify your, or turbo boost your practice as Zaretta sometimes likes to refer to it. <laughs> uh, so this uh, term, just the idea of culturally responsive teaching, would you, consider that to be like a, a new term or a new approach to education? Or is this similar to elements of education we've seen in the past? Sure, like it's part of equity. It's the teaching practice component of equity. Um, but I think it often gets um, misinterpreted as multicultural education, which really looks at celebrating different groups, um, looks more at representation. And then there's social justice education that looks at um, bringing in social justice issues, identifying social justice issues um, along the historical and current continuum, whereas culturally responsive teaching really is looking at that building the learner capacity. And I think it has the word culture and that makes people um, think of those other things, um, but it is is, you know, under the, the beautiful umbrella of equity, but um, it is not, um, not to be confused with those other components. Okay, so, and we, we've heard kind of each of those components in, in different ways, you know, over uh, previous years. So this is uh, just kind of a, another important element to kind of bear in mind as we really are trying to recognize and bridge those disparities that you spoke to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I would say, Absolutely. <laughs> nice. All right. So um, speaking specifically about Zaretta Hammond and her book, Culturally Responsive Teaching and the Brain, um, can you just kind of introduce us to the book and to her and tell us what we might expect to find? Sure. So I came across this book a number of years ago. I think it was like right after it was published. Uh, and I just kind of bought it and was like, whoa. <laughs> so <laughs> I think I've taught now at least um, the book seven or eight times in industry courses. Um, and I've, I saw her um, once a couple of years ago and then last, uh, well, yeah, last school year, there was a three-part series with her. So she is dynamic. She is amazing. Uh, there is a wonderful um, YouTube uh link that you can find. It's her, um, I believe it, I could, I could find the information on that, but um, where it really kind of talks about like her story um, and just, she's just so dynamic. So as far as her, uh, if you ever can watch her on YouTube or um, see her in person, it's, it's like, I can't write fast enough and I love to take notes <laughs> and I just can't write fast enough. Uh, in terms of the book, you know, the book goes into cognitive science and neuroscience um, as to help us think about how the brain works um, and then think about a culture as a software to the brain's hardware. And then it kind of gets into the big, um, kind of the big five I, I referred to them as, um, which are the, the main elements of culture responsive teaching, building a community of learners, um, learning partnerships, uh, so teacher and student and as partners, um, accessing the content, um, student agency and independence, and then cognitive development. So looking at those, those big five under the CRT um, framework. 
Nice, and it's it's good. You know, you you speak about um, Zaretta Hammond, and I think oftentimes, sometimes we just get a book and we're like, okay, where's where you know where's this coming from? What's in it? Um, with maybe overlooking the the actual person behind it, and you know, she really has. She has a, a dynamic personality and fun to learn from, um, which doesn't always translate into a, a book, uh, but you can kind of see just in her in her background and in her passion that this is you know, definitely someone that's worth uh, kind of listening to and learning from. Um, yeah, one of the things, an interesting fact that um, I, I don't believe is on the internet, but she did share that. Uh, she originally just wanted to talk about culturally responsive teaching. It was just culturally responsive teaching. Then there was no brain. <laughs> uh, and she actually had more um, elements of um, social justice education or um, kind of looking at the historical context of why CRT would even be needed, um, which we might get into a little bit later. Um, but she couldn't get it published. So um, there were a couple of different iterations and she's like, you know, um, this is deeply rooted in neuroscience um, uh, and more so in cognitive um, science. And so uh, that was how that kind of and the brain portion got added. Um, and she's like, and then it got published. So. <laughs> and, you know, I, I found that particularly helpful. And I know as an English teacher, I'm not always thinking about, you know, the, the science behind whatever topic that I'm engaging in, but uh, really as an educator, I find it super valuable to see like this this is rooted in like what she says is like the, the hardware of the brain and just being able to look at like there are some like concrete neural elements that go into this and if we can understand that the more we can understand the software and then some of the role that we have to play as we interact with each student that way yes and i mean culture is just this invisible cloud in which we live we don't even know that it's around us and um just that that chapter what's culture got to do it with it um is such an aha chapter for so many people because um not certainly they're not thinking about other people's culture because they're not even recognizing their own <laughs> and how that's being brought into the learning environment yeah, and let's dwell on that for um, a few moments too, because I think that's you know one of the things that's come up in some of my uh, just my own reflections and, and conversations is um, just this idea of culture and, and what it is and what it means. Um, we hear you know some people have said that you know I, I I'm just me I don't have a culture, um, and others talk about you know maybe someone else's culture how it contrasts some of their own experiences. Um, so what like in terms of culturally responsive teaching. What's important to understand about like what culture is and how it is this this cloud that we live in? Mm -hmm. I would say um, that when we are thinking about culture, it is the way that we make sense of the world. Um, and while people often associate culture with you know your ethnic background or like you know my my family immigrated and now we're in America, so I see myself as American. Well, all of that. There's a culture all everywhere. There's a culture in that. So I think that, um, you know, once you start to think about that in terms of the way you're making sense of the world, world, world rather, um, and how that might affect your value system or how that might affect um, how you um, make decisions or how you engage in conversation, um, then it's kind of um, some of the other work that's also under equity, you're, you're seeing kind of your own bias, you know, um, and that is definitely something that we all have. So you mentioned that uh, just kind of like exploring the idea of culture is one of the 
aha moments um, for educators as they encountered it in this book. Um, can you like, expand on that and maybe uh, any other like aha moments or uh, key takeaways you find a lot of educators have as they go through this? Sure, and if um, Hofstede's index is still correct, America is the most individualistic culture on earth currently. Um, and so when we when people do say like, I don't have a culture that's such a display of individualism <laughs> <laughs> and, and they might not even recognize that. Um, and then as we look at um, the other side of the continuum, which is collectivism and seeing oneself as a member of the group and the group is our existence. Um, there is, you know, and a lot in between, um, there are some differences there. Now, when people read the book, um, many people immediately say like collectivism, we'll do group work. There it is. There you go, problem solved. <laughs> Done. <laughs> um, and, but, uh, and, I, and this is kind of sometimes the limitation of the book um, because they're like, what does exactly um, cultural ways of when a teacher is skilled at engaging in cultural ways of being and cultural ways of communicating, what exactly does that mean? Um, and the book doesn't kind of dig as deep as many people and including myself would like on um, how to think about that. You know, it, it helps us recognize it, recognize what we're, we're bringing to the table, um, but there aren't, a, it's not a strategy book. And many people come into the, you know, CRT and be like, it's a CRT strategy. We'll do CRT Tuesdays. And it's not, it's not a day of the week. It's not a strategy. It's a process and not a product. Um, and that's what a lot of equity conversations are processes. And no, and some people are like, I don't like that. Yeah. <laughs> I like black, I like white. I like, this is the answer. I like strategies. You know, I want to put it on a Tuesday cause it's got the T in the name. Yeah. Um, and that's really not what it's about. It's an ongoing approach to everything that you do in the classroom. So even in thinking in terms of culture, um, what might students be bringing to the table that I um, am not thinking about as I'm having them engage in competitions or as they are learning, um, you know, in collectivist culture, you might want a hive to kind of lean on when you need it, you know, like as a resource and you might see yourself um, uh, getting help in terms of that or um, the importance of making the classroom like this is us, you know, instead of a, a hierarchy, which is very individualistic, like this is our space and we, when someone's not here, we're thinking of them and sending them our love and care, you know, we miss them, we don't make a snarky, sarcastic comment, we don't um, put students in positions where they're losing face, which is uh, um, very important to, to students in collectivist cultures. So it, it seems like you're kind of um, hinting at the idea that um, a lot of teachers who just have like this strong, uh, you know, American cultural background are much more likely to have an individualistic mindset. And that's just how they operate, how they see things. Um, whereas that may not be the case for many of our students uh, who just have a, a range of backgrounds and experiences that they bring. So are you saying like there's there's a little bit of this disparity between uh, the way teachers and the way students might just see the classroom, see the space and see school and part of cultural responsive teaching is uh, kind of becoming more attuned to that? Yes, yes. And um, I, again, in that chapter, you're not going to get <laughs> all the ways to do that. 
Um, and she's also not suggesting that, you know, like on that Hofstede's index, I think there's like, you can, um, oh, it is still in the book. That's right. Um, there are, I don't know, like 80 different uh, countries in there. And she's not suggesting like, you need to know everything about every single one of them. Um, but, you know, with that listening in that learning partnership with students, like, um, like listening, making parents are, um, are, what's the word I'm trying to look, um, she calls it, um, parents are the first teachers. The parents are the first teachers and what can they also teach us, you know, um, uh, and what do we need to know about their culture? Um, so that was a little bit of a ramble there, but I can be a little bit more. <laughs> Let me focus that in a little bit. Um, so even just like body language or eye contact, right? So in individualistic cultures, we look each other in the eye, we speak directly collectivist cultures may, that might be a sign of disrespect based on age or other various factors. Um, the reverence for elders as, as um, you know, also teachers, that, that is um, a big component of collectivism. And how does that play out in our families and in our um, classrooms, what they're bringing to, to our classrooms? You know, I, I wonder what some of the like questions uh, that, you know, teachers have been uh, engaged with this for the first time uh, might be, you know, one that comes to mind is that isn't, you know, school uh, an opportunity for, you know, students to learn and part of that learning is how to adapt themselves to the school culture to the expectations of the teachers. Um, you know, therefore, to what extent do we need to expect the teachers to be attuned to or adapting themselves to the, the different um, backgrounds of each of their students. Sure. And many people do go there kind of like, well, you know, people can't be punching each other, which is not <laughs> an element, element of either <laughs> necessarily. Well, of course not. Sure. Um, so there's no advocacy for for like not having any rules. Um, but there is, um, you know, the book is really looking systemically. Um, and again, she she's like, avoid shiny set strategy syndrome. So like, <laughs> when we're thinking about our system, who made our system? And who did it? Who was it made for? And who was included? And who was excluded? So there are certain things, um, when we say that we are, um, students should adapt to like this way, this is the way school is, this is the way it should be. Um, I would say we'd want to be thinking about why is it that way? And is all of that necessary? And if it doesn't include certain groups, then it's public education, it is for everybody. Um, and whose culture are we using to say what is normal? If we have a, um, a, a dress code policy, does it uh, disproportionately affect certain groups over others? Um, or if there are parts of the um, dress code that don't, uh, that don't get enforced, <laughs> but another group it's, um, is overrepresented there, but that doesn't get enforced, then again, kind of looking at that systemically, which again is the bigger equity umbrella because there are many other non-CRT um, elements within there. Yeah. Are there other uh, like questions or concerns or even maybe objections that uh, you found educators have as they're encountering some of the ideas? Yes, and I mean, and to your point, definitely um, the idea that, um, you know, there should be a dominant um, element in schools, which it really is speaking to culture without speaking about it. 
Um, but we also at Schomburg, when we um, engaged in the book study, started with the presuppositions that um, Zaretta has put together, which are not in the book, um, which actually, you know, bears a question. I wonder if it was in the previous version of the book, but you know, it's neither here nor there. But um, basically the presuppositions look at how education was built inequitably, unequally, um, and the, um, the or origin of education was to kind of continue the class system, um, but really kind of built with um, dominant white middle-class values at, at the core of it. Um, so I think that when we look at those presuppositions, some, some folks have a strong reaction to that, um, that like from its inception, schools were unequal, you know, and then you start looking at, you know, how there were black schools and there were white schools and how, which schools were better and how, um, that, that very deep well of um, uh, historical context of education, or even with Indian boarding schools where indigenous people were taken from their homes, haircut put in, um, you know, white dominant culture clothes, not allowed to speak their language, um, which really undermined, um, you know, the, the culture, obviously, and when they'd come back to the reservation or to, um, to their homes, they couldn't interact with their elders anymore. So really, um, how that is at the foundation of American education and how there have been inequities since then. Um, and that's pretty hard to swallow because you know folks wanna be like, but I'm not part of that. But when we have these predictable um, uh, patterns of who succeeds and who fails really bears the question, what is at the root of that? Because we know it's not like racially, these folks are smarter than that. We know that these folks, you know, we know that that's not um, at the bottom of it. So there are other constructs at the bottom of it. So people do struggle with that. Um, and so when, when they're like, why do I need to change? There should be a dominant culture. I always try to go back to that. Like we have these inequities, what, what are we gonna do about them? And, and um, the book is trying to get us to think of the system, specifically information processing um, as part of that. So have uh, any educators ever brought up the idea of, all right, if uh, you know the, this book or just these kind of these broad ideas are speaking to the system, I understand as an educator, I'm, I'm in the education system, but I'm, I'm just one person. It's just my, my students, my classroom. I, I love them all. I do my best with them. Aren't I doing my role? Is that not enough? Um, so that has, I think, some you know, roots in social justice for sure. Um, I don't know, you know, the book's not going to answer that, but what, the, what I think that Zaretta would really focus on is, you know, are there predictable patterns happening in your class? <laughs> and if they are, then we need to do more than more. We need mm -hmm. to do more. We need to make sure that we're reaching all students. And she's saying that like our, our software, our culture, um, is one way to do the understanding that there are different um, uh, points on the continuum of collectivism and individualism. And we can harness those differences and uh, to approach our planning, our um, instruction, our curriculum um, so that students can jump in, jump hold of it and, and uh, break it down and make sense of it. Yeah, I think that's interesting that you say uh, like predictable uh, patterns because I mean, especially if it's predictable, then we can see it coming. And if it is a negative pattern, should 
want to you know take proactive steps to kind of you know circumvent that that problem um but is a piece of it also like maybe i identifying other patterns that maybe we we weren't as um attuned to or are not necessarily in line with some of the the most predictable ones um is there a way that even within our, our classroom or in our grade books or curriculums we can um kind of take a closer look at maybe some uh you know, so, some elements that, that emerge? Yes. Yeah. I think you're hitting the nail on the head there. Um, I think that, you know, as you dive into this, and this is definitely the very first time I taught it, uh, a teacher was like, what am I supposed to do now? Like, I, <laughs> I know all this stuff, but like, ah, and very, and very much to your point, like I'm one person, what am I supposed to do? Like start in your classroom, you know, and we do need this. And then, you know, work with your PLT because we do need this. Um, she coins it as collective inquiry. We need this a collective inquiry. We need to be having these conversations amongst ourselves, our PLTs, our departments um, for it to have that bigger systemic impact. But there are, um, and as we continue to have these conversations, as we continue to be like, wow, there is this pattern here. And um, this book is gonna help me look at the, the information processing component of it. Then you start to look at other things like you know, policies or um, just bigger ideas or like, wait, why don't we engage parents like this if we know that's a better way to engage parents? You know, So you start to ask one question and it um, births another and another and, um, and that's how we make change. So it's really, uh, you know, it's kind of leads to an ongoing conversation, and it really has to like this. So this this pattern of just us like working collectively to to recognize more and more of what we can do to bridge those disparities. I, I think that makes sense because you know sometimes we can, um, you know, listen to something and say, well, you know, I'm I'm not in a position where I can do anything, but you know, somebody who is better do something about this, you know. Um, or, or feel like they, we are being proactive, but if it's just in our classroom with the door closed, so to speak, um, and someone across the hall is doing the same thing, we could amplify our efforts by just working together. And the more we bring into that, the, the better, it seems like you're saying. Yes, absolutely. And I'm going to, you know, give a shout out to your very own Patty Ertle. You know, when we say they aren't doing this or they or this person needs to do we are they, <laughs> you, know, you all are CHS, you know, and, um, the, and it has to start somewhere. Um, and those can, those conversations have to continue. And, um, and what we'll find is we have our district equity committee moving forward that, you know, there is no end to it. It's a, it's a commitment. It's a commitment to our students um, to give them what they need and so that they can meet their unique needs, but also so they can fulfill their aspirations. So you've uh, mentioned that the book is not a, a book of strategies. We can't turn to page 72 and see a list of things we can do in our classroom tomorrow. I, I think we really like that as educators because we're like, okay, like if this is the right thing to do, just tell me what to do, tell me how to do it. So why, uh, I, I, and you kind of address the, the content of the book a little bit, but you know why is a, a book as thought-provoking and effective as this is um, not one with strategies? If it's not strategies, what is it, and why are we starting there? Sure. Um, so it is a way for teachers to first recognize students' cultural display of of knowledge, like how they see the world, how that software, that cultural software 
operates um, and it's to help us understand the concept of information processing, which is where our brain work comes in and then bridging those two. Um, and within that, not just stopping there, but really building learner independence. Um, and so as a tool for agency, you know, as we um, build learner independence, um, we really can help students kind of take it to that next level to um, be lifelong learners, um, more critical thinkers, better community members in the future. So I think um, I, I did love that question of like takeaways. And I think that one of them that I've heard time and time again is, you know, I have a classroom filled with independent learners and I've been enabling them. <laughs> <laughs> like, I'm sorry, I might've said independent learners. I meant dependent learners and I have been enabling them instead of moving them to learner independence. Um, and sometimes, um, and I think this book does a good job of helping us stop ourselves because we are like, well, they're dependent. Now I'm gonna make them independent by just giving them work and now, oh, but they're not doing it. And, you know, so um, there's a whole middle part. <laughs> then that is that information processing that you'll find in the book. Like, how do I get them to learner dependence? I help them build cognitive routines. I, I um, develop intellectual curiosity so that they're curious. So they'll join me in that learner partnership. And when they join me in that learner partnership, then I can challenge them at the level that would be appropriate so that um, that they can um, build algorithms for how to solve the problems I need them to solve within my content or how to build the skills within my content and use all of that uh, eventually once internalized independently. So I guess it's kind of a roadmap. I've never really thought of it that way until I've just said it like that. Um, so it's kind of piece by piece giving you this roadmap of, because um, when people see that chapter about learning partnerships, Everyone does a mental um, check in the box, uh, <laughs> you know, or community of learners um, check in the box because I build relationships or I do SEL activities. And that's what she does not want you to do. She doesn't want you to check the box. She doesn't want to say, I have this strategy and I have that strategy. It's everything every day building towards those pillars of, um, of CRT. So it seems like what she's presenting then is it's a little bit of a deeper way to think of it. It's like this, this framework, it's the, you know, she's gonna present some terms and define here's, here's what we do want, uh, but let's distinguish that from what we, what we don't want as well. And then uh, like laying that foundation, then teachers with their expertise can find what's going to work best, you know, for their particular circumstances, their particular students. And then those strategies may likely change depending on uh, your different course or different context that you're teaching, but those, those fundamentals still stay the same. Precisely. Thank you for wrapping that up in such an eloquent way. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I, I want to talk about you specifically. Um, what are, are there? Are there any particular like areas of of the text or just of culturally responsive teaching in general um, that you felt like were maybe the most challenging to just understand or to just grapple with? Sure. I think that um, one of them would be, and she just briefly alludes to it. Um, it's it mentioned just a few times of this deficit ideology. And I think that's a good place for people to kind of um, dig into a little bit. And I think um, it could be really beneficial for your small group interactions in discussing the book because um, that tends to be something that comes up a lot. So 
Um, there are a variety of different uh, definitions of deficit ideology, but just a kind of general one is um, looking at the deficits that students are bringing in or operationalizing your own cultural lens to judge family students um, based on these perceived deficits. Um, and really what we want to do, and I wish there was a chapter on this, which I mean, there kind of is by like, you know, looking at culture as assets, but really having an, an asset-based ideology. So yes, this student, you know, failed this class, or yes, this student is currently in a remedial class. Um, yes, all of these things, we, we know all of these things, or perhaps, you know, the student had traumatic brain injury, or the student has um, different, you know, uh, disability. Those are all, I mean, our, our IEPs are kind of written in deficit ideology, but what are the assets? What are the things that students are bringing in that are assets? Um, and, you know, culture can be one of them. Uh, collectivism can be seen as one of them. And how does that get operationalized? How does that, how do you consider that as you plan? Um, so I think that's something that's very difficult. Um, and because it doesn't go as deep in the book, but she does talk about it very often when she presents, um, that could be something that could be difficult um, for folks to kind of make meaning out of. Uh, so what's your recommendation for an educator cracking this open for the first time? It, would you expect them to uh, just kind of agree and try to absorb um, everything that they're exposed to in the book? Or would you encourage or even, you know, anticipate some room for like disagreement or, or exploration or like what, what is um, a recommended response to reading through this? Sure. I think, you know, everything that I think that she presents um, is rooted in, in cognitive science or neuroscience, um, just like how the brain works. So I would encourage people to not live in the disputing <laughs> the science <laughs> at this point, you know? Um, mm -hmm. So I think that is one kind of element. Um, and perhaps that's really why she doesn't talk too much about how equity really plays into all of this. She will just say, you know, like, um, that CRT is about uh, focusing on students um, who have been marginalized and, and bringing them in and, um, you know, expanding the, the tools that you use and the perspective that you use in the classroom to design and develop and assess and all those good things. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I would say, like, there's not a, a ton to necessarily dispute. I, I think, like, um, what, what, is what have you learned from this and what can you, where can you start in each chapter? That's really kind of where I would encourage people to live instead of like, well, I mean, how much is this culture really playing out if the kid's been in America for, you know, like what, what is true? What do you see? And really like kind of um, even a next step is like, how can you make your own hive and huddle with people and, and engage in collective inquiry around this? Like what, you know, cause the do part, you know, is not in the book. <laughs> so the do part is up to you really trying to keep those elements in mind, how the brain processes information, how the brain deeply desires to connect with other people and how, um, how the brain needs to be primed <laughs> very yeah. often we come in individualistic pragmatic we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and then we're going to do this and you need to go here and we become very um compliant you know driven 
which is very individualistic mentality instead of like your next challenge is like, this is what's coming at you next. Like, are you ready for this? You can do this. I'm giving you this feedback because I have high expectations of you and I know that you can reach them, you know, which is just a different mindset. So finding those big elements and like, what does that mean for you? I think is where a good place to dwell. Mm-hmm. So it seems really practical um, for an educator to maybe like start with this book and first of all, don't treat it like the end because this is really laying a foundation that then they can go and pursue maybe some more specific strategies or some more education, develop that huddle. Um, so, I mean, that seems very important, but especially uh, we, we can't skip this step either because we might want to say like, well, okay, like I, I, I like some of these specifics that you're laying. I'm just going to go do those. I'm going to do a you know, Google search and find you know, the, the top six ways to uh, you know, facilitate collectivist uh, culture in my classroom. And, and then I should be set, right? Um, so it seems like this book plays kind of an important role and maybe more the, the mindsets and perspective we want to bring so that we can make better, more concrete decisions with our students down the road. Yes, and then having the why, you know, like there was, um, I think Zaretta was on Cult of Pedagogy at least once, if not twice. And it was, um, she talked just about like gamify things and storify things like make it a story. That one doesn't sound like what it is, but (laughs) (laughs) Um, you know, and again, that's a strategy and people will say, yes, I'm doing that, but like, you're doing that to what end? You know, knowing that um, storytelling is a, often a big component of a collectivist culture, and knowing that you're bringing that in maybe as student choice or um, you know in a project, or knowing that you're bringing gamification in, but there is maybe a teamwork element. Um, you know, there can, not that there cannot be individual competitions. That she would not be saying that either. But like understanding that why that we're making that choice. And how, how is this helping them process information? You know, I'm using their cultural way of knowing. Um, that's why I made this instructional choice. So continuing that conversation. Yeah, I think that's really thoughtful. And that pertains to, you know, a lot of what we do where it's like, well, why, why do I have this assignment or why am I you know, representing these skills or this content on these assessments? And uh, why do I grade something one way and, you know, something else is represented differently in the grade book? There's, that's a great question. Why? Um, and I think this is a book that hopefully will help us, you know, kind of undergird some of the specific decisions that we make. Um, so if someone were interested in just learning more about equity-based instruction, um, what are some other resources you might recommend that could be either good companions or good follow-ups to culturally responsive teaching? Sure. So if someone is really looking at, um, you know, kind of more the idea of like how their um, how their culture, how their perspective is operationalized, I would say Gary Howard, um, we can't teach what we don't know. White teachers, multiracial schools is a great um, is a great read. Um, I am uh, have a an enormous educational crush, obviously on Zaretta, but also John Hattie, um, like nobody's business. And so <laughs> visible learning, um, which looks at when we're using strategies, which ones um, have the deepest, the biggest um, hinge point, the, or the biggest uh, impact on on learning. Um, and also, if we're looking, we we are like geeky about. Um, neuroscience or cognitive science, like I absolutely am. Um, (laughs) Understanding how we learn a visual guide is phenomenal. So like those are kind of my 
top three. Um, if people are more like, I need, I, I need to understand this system. Um, you know, again, Gary Howard's is pretty good. Um, you know, white fragility, um, is pretty good, uh, or is good, not pretty good. Um, but what I would say is please do not use Ruby pain. <laughs> <laughs> I know she came. I know, you know, she talked to everybody a number of years ago for us OGs, you know, we yeah. saw her, she was there, but um, she really talks about poverty being a culture and we want to get away from that. That is like living in the pool of deficit mindset. Not that everything needs, I'm not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but like that is highly problematic. And that really feeds into like, there's something wrong with them and we need to fix them. There's there's nothing wrong. <laughs> well, not that there's nothing wrong with anybody. Everybody's got something wrong with them, I'm sure. But uh, it's not about deficits. It's about assets and really looking at how do I, how do I maximize these assets um, in the classroom? Nice. And I, if I can um, just kind of talk about when I'm thinking about if after this text, like what is a good next step? Um, and this is more from something that she presented. Uh, she, and I think this quote from Vygotsky is um, in the book as well, if I'm not mistaken, but that children grow into the intellectual life around them. So um, if someone's looking for like a next step and like the do, um, how do we build that intellectual life? Meaning specifically, so not to be general because that can be frustrating to people, yeah. Um, how can we make what we're learning relevant, like really relevant, not like I like Game of Thrones, you know, I just like in six weeks rode through and I mean row, like I'm a row machine. I got through all of it in six weeks. I was like, wow, this is great. But if none of my students are watching it, I'm making all these references and I'm saying like, you know, making analogies about it, like that, all that's falling flat. So how do I make it relevant to the students that I have in my class? Um, how do I make it like, which means it needs to be student centric and there needs to be components of voice and just how can I make whatever I want them to learn interesting, relevant, interesting. How do I, you can't make them curious, but you can get them curious and you can build intellectual curiosity. And so that's a big component in the learning partnership. And I think that could be a really um, powerful place for somebody to start. And that's something an individual can do a PLT, a department. Absolutely. Nice. Well, we're, we're definitely looking forward into, you know, going further into the text and uh, we'd love to have you back at some point as well um, to you know, kind of continue to talk about, you know, like here's our takeaways, but also here's some of the next steps that we're looking towards. And you can be part of our hive, we hope, and uh, help us develop from there. Um, if anyone were interested in just learning more about you or connecting with you, Alina, where should they go? Well, I'm not a Twitter pro, so I would just say, just shoot me an email. We can always um, powwow a little bit. Uh, I'm also going to try to run the book study again this semester, and I'm hoping to get a class through another industry course through kind of like CRT um, and the brain, now what? Um, and I think that now many, many people in our district have read the book um, and you know, in seven courses, many have taken course one and really kind of drill down into like, what else can we do? So that would be another way to connect. Fantastic. We'll look forward to that. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the Teaching and Learning podcast today. I think we learned a lot from you and um, we certainly look forward to connecting further down the road. Thank you. Honored to be here. 
Thanks, everyone, for listening to our conversation with Alina. You heard us talk about not just Hammond's book, but also the broader idea of how important it is for us as educators to be able to answer the why behind what we do, especially when it comes to the strategies we select for bridging gaps and addressing disparities. I think what stood out the most to me was that there are recognizable, even predictable deficits that we can no longer pass off as normal, but instead must do the hard work of understanding how we can effectively identify the roots of these and address these. Along with that, she points out the importance of not going about this work alone. As an army of one, I I might be able to have some degree of effective influence on my own students, but our influence and understanding is amplified by those we have in our huddle. So I know I will be continuing to work to bring others alongside me and grow my huddle so that through our efforts, our collective observations, and our conversations, we can continue to sharpen our practice and recognize and mitigate the systemic elements that are negatively impacting our students. Thank you for joining us on today's episode of the Teaching and Learning Podcast. I hope you found today's conversation as thought-provoking as I did. And as always, until next time, stay curious. My soul for a wish, pennies and dimes for a kiss. I wasn't looking for this, but now you're in my.